Money is a technology for measuring fucks given. If I wanted to have a slightly more economy-focused and uh, maybe slightly more flippant kind of novel, I would have called the unit of currency the fuck. <laughs> because it measures whether you give a fuck. Anyone who claims to give a fuck and they're not spending their money on something doesn't actually give a fuck. And that's the worst part of government. It's not just that it takes a lot of your stuff. It's that it takes a lot of your stuff and then it pays smart people to do stupid things when they could be doing smart things instead. Anytime you subsidize something, by definition, you're artificially influencing people to do things that people don't actually give a fuck about. Because if they actually gave a fuck, they would pay for it themselves out of their own supply of fucks. Greetings and salutations, my fellow plebs. My name is Walker, and this is the Bitcoin Podcast. The Bitcoin block height is 830462, and the value of one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. Today's episode is Bitcoin Talk, where I talk with my guest about Bitcoin and whatever else comes up. Today, that guest is Devin Erickson, a software engineer turned science fiction writer who went viral for absolutely destroying the interim CEO of OpenAI after he suggested a 100% inheritance tax and some other fucking stupid ideas. I read Devin's first sci-fi novel, Theft of Fire, and I absolutely loved it. And I knew I needed to get him on the show. Devin and I went deep into a fuckload of topics from science fiction to culture and law to capitalism versus communism, private property and Bitcoin, AI, technology, plus a whole lot more. If you are a Bitcoiner who, like me, spends most of your time reading about Austrian economics and, of course, Bitcoin, I highly recommend you take a little break and check out Theft of Fire. Plus, Bitcoin is mentioned multiple times in the book, so it's basically like reading a Bitcoin book, but a lot more fun. Check the links in the show notes for Devin's website so you can grab a copy of Theft of Fire. As always, you can watch the video version of this show on Rumble, YouTube, or X by searching at Walker America, or listen on Fountain.fm or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Bitcoin Podcast. And if you do listen to The Bitcoin Podcast on Fountain, which I recommend, Consider creating a clip of something you found interesting in this show or giving it a boost. And if you're not using Fountain yet, what are you doing? You can send Bitcoin to your favorite podcasters and earn Bitcoin just for listening to this show. And finally, if you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, hit me up on social media or through the website, bitcoinpodcast.net. Without further ado, let's get into this Bitcoin talk with Devin Erickson. A lot of things that are very valuable in retrospect, usually when they start out, they're just some thing that somebody thinks will never amount to anything. I don't know if you've seen that uh, famous Usenet post from Linus Torvalds where he says, I'm just working on this little project operating system. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes at the beginning of things, you, you get moments like that. So... 
you know, you don't underestimate yourself and you always try to write down your thoughts and record what you're saying and capture it all because you don't know what might be useful later. Uh, amen. So much, uh, a lot of brilliance and beauty happens in, uh, in serendipitous moments uh, that are not planned. Yeah. And, well, and to quote you, a uh, plan is a list of things that aren't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like you, you always have to plan, but you always have to revise the plan. You know, I, I always planned, for example, to sort of, okay, there's going to be this arc between unknown scribbler on the internet and hopefully A-list novelist. But we never thought that path would go through anti-communist rants. <laughs> I, and, you know, that's, uh, that is precisely how I found out about you. It was that mm -hmm. back and forth that you had. Although I don't even know if it's quite fair to call it a back and forth with Emmett Shear. Because well, he blocked that... me fairly quickly. Did he, did he really? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh. Like the... The uh, the second message, basically, I said something, he said something, and I said something, and he blocked me. So, you know, it's 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 kind of a disappointment from sort of his personal growth perspective because you know I'm sure that his feelings were hurt, and that's regrettable. But usually, in these teachable moments that we're going to learn something, usually our feelings are hurt because it's always, it's always more difficult to change your worldview to accommodate something than it is to assimilate something into your existing worldview. But that's such an important skill. You know, I think maybe there's, there's like a couple of personal traits that are key predictors for success in life. And that's high IQ, high agency and high teachability. And this man is sitting here pontificating on how he would organize society if he were king. And he's saying, you know, I think that everyone has potential within them and I want to make a world with equal opportunity for everybody because you're all smart and therefore I think we should confiscate everybody's inheritance and just redistribute it. And it's like, then when somebody says, that's a terrible idea, You've destroyed all of the legacy and all of the multi-generational technical know-how in your culture, and you've forced the sale of every asset, and you've made all the wealth flow through the government, which, which is known to have sticky fingers. Um, and then when somebody objects to that, he, he says, why don't you understand that I'm trying to help you because I respect you? No, you don't. I'm just trying to help the plebeians. Us. You don't fucking respect us. If you respected us, you'd listen. You know, Amen. it's it's these people the funny... who see themselves as these abstract philosopher kings because they got slightly fortunate in the market and knew one how to do one thing well. 
you know, when I want to make a video game streaming website, I'm going to call Amateur. Well, maybe not now, but I, in, in abstractly, <laughs> I would. <laughs> you know, when I want to make a video game streaming website, you know, when I'm going to design a society, you know, I'm not going to say, gosh, what does the founder of a video game streaming website think? You know, maybe the one is just a little more complicated than the other. You know, maybe the one is, is this problem that we have been trying to solve since human beings first learned to bang the rocks together. And, you know, is just... Yeah, and, and I think one of the reasons that this kind of rant sort of resonated is that people see this kind of thing and they get, they get scared. And they're right to get scared because this person is an eminent public figure and senators will take his phone calls. And then you see this very, very simplistic first order thinking coming out of this guy. And it's, it's scary because it makes people start to wake up to the fact that the people in charge aren't any smarter than you. They're just meaner and greedier. And, you know, then when somebody says, no, that's, that's stupid, you're being stupid, stop using wisdom as a dump stat and start paying attention to all of the other people around you who have skin in the game. They're affected by these things. They're not just sitting on top of a stack of $500 million pontificating about how we should rearrange the universe according to my game theory. Well, and read some fucking history, too. Yeah. Like, this isn't yeah. some theoretical yeah. thing. Yeah. You, can, you don't have to look very far to find many examples of yeah. exactly what he's suggesting throughout yeah. history. My, yeah. my wife's yeah. family, it's, it's, her it's, dad we, defected from yeah. communist Romania. Like, yeah. This We're, literally happened to their yeah. family. Yeah, well, and they always say, well, it's not communism. Well, it's it's the same sort of cluster of things where you're centralizing everything in society in order to control it because you think that you're so smart that you can just sort of tell all of humanity their marching orders and everything will work out fine. And, you know, communism... You know, Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, to which some wag responded that communism is the opiate of the intellectual. <laughs> and the reality is that is that socialism doesn't really, it doesn't appeal to the intellect. It appeals to the intellectual. Because the intellectual, per Thomas Sowell, is someone whose work product is ideas. And they like to think, oh, I'm going to sit around and I'm going to think of ideas and then I'm going to fix all the problems in society by thinking of ideas and everybody is going to stand up and clap. And the thing is that when you have an idea, you need people to go along with it. And there's two things you can do about that. You can persuade them which is very difficult and takes a long time and requires a lot of effort. 
or you can centralize all of the power in society and you know you can point guns at people which you don't think of as pointing guns at people you think of it as making laws but it really comes down to violence because that's what laws are enforced with and this centralization of power represents this sort of treasure trove of power for in, for implementing intellectuals ideas it's like here's the one ring and if you have the one ring you can you can make your ideas into reality and all intellectuals tend to think well if all of my ideas were made into reality it would you know it would be paradise and if you crack a history book that never happens what happens is mountains of skulls and then they always say well that wasn't me and those were the wrong ideas well the truth is that everybody no matter how smart they are and i include myself in this 99% of their ideas are rubbish really 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 rubbish and what we do in capitalism is everybody just goes out and implements their ideas on their own in their own little life or their own little business and then you know every once in a while somebody runs across that 1% idea like how about we make the rocket booster reusable <laughs> and then it works and everybody goes we're going to imitate him and then that idea spreads so capitalism is basically this massive parallel processing of trying to find ideas and let me tell you nothing will teach you that most of your ideas are rubbish like writing a novel <laughs> seriously it's a process of about 6 months to a year depending on how persnickety you're being and how good you are and how fast you are but when you when you crack a finished novel that's good stuff i mean it's not shovelware then you always get this phenomenon of wow this writer is so brilliant every page of this is just dripping with good ideas and you have to understand you know and people say this to me and i'm like well thank you but you have to understand that you are taking 20 to 24 hours to consume a years worth of all my smart ideas after i had thrown away all the bad ones so when you write fiction and when you go over it and over it and over it and edit it and edit it and edit it you realize that you know most of the stuff i come up with on a daily basis is stupid <laughs> you just throw away all the stupid ones and that's what capitalism does it throws away the stupid ideas by allowing business to to fail and keeping the good ones i i love that analogy and you know i I think we are already I think we're already in it uh Devin I think we're already we're already diving in if that's okay with you um, Sure yeah absolutely because I you are already like inside my brain as far as uh some of the things I wanted to talk about so this is fantastic <laughs> Well And, one of know, the this functions, is great Sorry 
No, no. I was just going to say, uh, before we get going, I want to like, just have you kind of introduce yourself a little bit, but finish that, finish that thought first, finish the thought first. Then we'll, then I'll ask you a a one simple introductory question and we'll roll from there. If that sounds good. (laughs) I'm afraid I lost it. So I'll introduce myself to you first. Who Um, are you and how'd you get here today? I am Devin Erickson. I am a retired engineer who just sat down one day and started writing novels. It's like, okay, I'm retired. I can do what I want. You know, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a science fiction writer. And, you know, some adults said, oh, honey, that's a stupid dream. You should do something else. And, you know, now I'm like, hey, I, you know, <laughs> I'm retired. You can't tell me what to do. Fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> and so what I wanted to do was create books. And this is my debut novel, Theft of Fire. Um, with, it is the first of a four book series and we came about out about, uh, exactly three months ago, I think. And so far we're doing pretty well. You know, we've hit the top 10 in hard science fiction on a few days. We've had some days where we hit the top thousand on Amazon and that's, all of Amazon. So that's like every book ever published. And then, okay, my agent is is trying to coach me. Stop that. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, we just had a nice post on Twitter today where uh, John Carmack finished it and endorsed me and gave me a nice shout out. So that was fun because John Carmack spent a lot of time entertaining me when I was young. So I'm happy to be able to a little bit repay the favor. <laughs> Man, well, I've, I've got the book. Uh, I figured I'd, you know, uh, since mm-hmm. I have you, I have to put it right behind yeah. me as well. You yeah. know? So your yeah. agent for, for, you know, their benefit, there it uh-huh. is as well. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, I just finished it. I, I absolutely loved it. I did, read about probably the first quarter of it out loud uh, to my wife and newborn son. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like two months old, so I don't think I think a lot of it went over his yeah, head. Yeah, I think um, I, I didn't. You know, but, I didn't really target the, uh, the, the still in diapers demographic <laughs> yeah. very much. It would have been a very different book. <laughs> yeah. Well, my I, I read the rest of it uh, just inside my good old head because it turns out I wanted to finish it. Uh, a lot faster and couldn't quite put it down. And so uh, went through the rest of it. And I've got to say it was, it's a fantastic, fantastic story from the characters, how they develop the fact that you told it in first person through Marcus's experience of how he's going through these, you know, couple of meaningful, very meaningful relationships for him. It made all the difference to me and it felt so much more real. Yeah. That decision was a calculated decision that that presented a, a great deal of difficulty for me because um that was that was a complete showstopper for getting published through any traditional publishing house you know i had uh, i had various editors and agents completely shut down the moment they found out it was written in first person present tense i literally had one guy from a major publishing house at a convention 
hand me back my sample chapters, you know, holding them up with his fingers like this, for those of you who can see the video, as if I had handed him a dead spider. And he said, rewrite it in the third person. You do know what third person means, don't you? And it's like, okay, I can see that I am going to have to publish this myself. Because the whole point of, you know, not the only point, but a major point of some of the character arcs is how people misinterpret what they see and misinterpret other people through the lens of their own experience. And the story is very much about three characters learning to understand each other and learning to work together. And so the, the first person perspective was critical to that. And, and you know, they're just, uh, well, that's not fashionable right now. <laughs> well, okay, um, I'll publish it myself and I'll make it fashionable. Because I don't think that the book buying public is subject to silly whims. I think that is something that publishers just sort of come up with so they can fool themselves into thinking they're divining the market or something. And, you know, they're not. They're not. It's the only thing that is, is really, that readers are into is good writing. And I think that all of these things that publishers think are trends, like, you know, in early 2000s, Oh, dark fantasy is really hot right now. Well, no, George Martin is really hot right now. You know, and you get all these editors telling Brandon Sanderson, can you make it darker? Well, no, <laughs> and he shouldn't. <laughs> he's, he's Brandon Sanderson. He's not the next George Martin. He's doing his own thing. And every good piece of art comes from, not that I necessarily include myself. That's that's other people's decision, not mine. I just, I, I would. I just make the stuff. I include good fiction in art. You know, what I mean, every, it is. Every piece of art that is genuinely good, and I include George Martin's work in that, even though he is a fat, lazy slob and doesn't finish his work, um, every good piece of art proceeds from a singular artistic vision. And that can come from one person, or it can be shared between a couple of people who communicate really well. But there's always one vision in charge. You can't make good fiction, and you can't make inspiring fiction. You can't make fiction that makes people feel something by committee. And that's why you have nothing to watch these days. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? I mean, it is... It is kind of absurd that you see, if we talk about, let's say, Hollywood as a as a blanket term, the the only science fiction that you see, and it feels dirty even calling it that, is just yeah. recycled versions yeah. of what was popular 20, 30, 40 years ago yeah. when they were actually yeah. new and innovative ideas, yeah. and now they're just recycling yeah. it with new... Uh, new little tidbits thrown in that are trendy right yeah, now. Yeah. You know. Well, the storytellers who knew how to innovate and were willing to do so have largely aged out of the business. So the problem is deeper than just this sort of far left, 
woke neo-Marxist messaging. The problem is that the, the people who have done this their entire career, this kind of messaging, and that's really just how they show off for their friends. It has nothing to do with the audience. You know, the people who have done that all their careers, they don't know the principles of storytelling. They don't understand what makes a story engaging. They don't understand how to make characters relatable. And there's lots of people who could tell them, and there's lots of books they could read to learn that. But the prerequisite to learning anything is that third attribute I talked about, that teachable attitude, that willingness to restructure your view of the universe to accommodate this new information that you have. And you know, what we see today in this sort of Disney, Star Wars, you know, Marvels, designed by committee films full of big CGI fight sequences and Joss Whedon style quips is that when audiences say, we don't really like this, what they do is they, they call the fans racist or sexist or somethingist. They double down on what they're doing and they say, you know, no, it's not, it's not my artistic vision that's wrong in the sense that they have one at all. It's, you know, you guys are wrong fans. You're supposed to like it. Well, as an author, you don't get to say that. You are the god of your universe, but you are not the god of your audience. They are guests in your universe, and it's their decision whether they like it or not. But these people can't accept that because they've based their entire worldview around what's popular in their own social circle, and they simply don't have the storytelling skills. You know, they don't know how to do it. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to write like I did, is that I spent my youth, you know, a lot of it in the back of the public library before they all got made into homeless shelters <laughs> um, with this big stacks of classic science fiction, you know, by people who really knew not only how to entertain, but how to fire the imagination. And it's like, okay, I want to make a 20th, 21st century version of this. I want to make something that captures that same feeling, but is updated a little bit because the technology is updated a little bit. <laughs> No, I, I love it. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about Theft of Fire was, it. first of all, the the narrative itself and the story was, was wonderful. But the fact that, one, you clearly did a ton of research and put a lot of energy into making sure it was the science actually worked. Like the science part of the science fiction was actually plausible. Uh, and that makes a huge difference when it's actually believable. The other thing is just that it felt, 
you know, even though a lot of the, the subject matter itself is, is dark at times and you're dealing with these, you know, these difficult situations, the overall message felt more hopeful. I mean, it, it, it is, it is ultimately a story of, of transformation and of hope and of what is possible. And well, there was also an light, element of realism, yeah. true realism, uh, not just yeah, uh, dystopian yeah. mumbo yeah, jumbo. Yeah. 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 Well, for a light to be clearly visible, you have to take it into dark places. Yeah. And one of my inspirations was a very excellent video essay called Is Superman Still Relevant? And there's a lot of people nowadays who think that he isn't. And Superman, you know, once once he sort of got going and, you know, people had a clear idea of who he was and he got out of the roots of the original storytellers sort of started trying to do FDR worship and this kind of thing. Um, Superman was an aspirational character. It's not a story about a man who can punch the giant robot harder than the giant robot can punch him. That's not really the core of the story. The story is about aspirational morality about a good example and you know a lot of people this this was written in a very hopeful time when america was very ascendant and we had a strong sense of cultural unity and i think the reason that a lot of these corporate writer hacks are now more interested in comic book villains is because they have a hard time identifying with that kind of ethos because they're busy like, okay, I have enough trouble in my own life. I'm just kind of hanging on by my fingernails. I'm not very mentally stable, which you can see if you look at photographs of some of these people. Um, and I don't feel like I have the cargo space to help or save anybody else. You know, I want to gain power and influence. I want to get my own life in order. And this I want impulse tends to make them feel more aligned with the traditional comic book villains than with the heroes. And what they tend to say is that the heroes are boring. And of course, soon after follows the term unrealistic. And I think the reason that these people think that Superman is unrealistic is that they don't see a path between themselves and Superman. They don't see a path between where they are and somebody who is successful and virtuous and heroic. And so I wanted to write a story about a bunch of people who kind of start out as crappy people. <laughs> you know, it's there there have been some some uh some interesting debates online about whether in the beginning of the book Marcus or Miranda is a worse person. <laughs> with strongly held opinions on both sides and not to give away too much for the trilogy but the the 
the plan is, here's how you go from someone who isn't a good person to someone who actually does the right thing and creates something worthwhile or does something worthwhile that is that is good for everyone instead of good for themselves at the expense of everyone else so the the intent for the series is to be a story of heroism for the 21st century well i'm i'm already excited uh for the next one uh it's uh... As soon as I put it down, I was like, "Gosh, I, I cannot wait to uh, to pick this up again." Uh-huh. <laughs> and and you know, something that uh, you've you've talked about, I've seen you uh, tweet about, and I think yeah. I heard you on a couple other podcasts talk about is the idea of because we're talking about culture here, really, right? And and how the culture in storytelling has shifted, mm-hmm. uh, both through centralizing forces and decisions by committee, but yeah. also through just people. Kind of, I mean, you're writing what's in you. Uh, yeah. Right. And yeah. we see that a lot of what is in people yeah. is pretty dark yeah. and does yeah. not aspire to that heroic yeah. role. Yeah. And you've also talked about the idea that law itself is downstream from that culture. Oh, yeah. Can we explore yes. that a little bit? Because well, I think that's a really yeah, important. Not point. just law, but technology and really all of society is downstream from culture. And Just to give an example of this kind of thinking, you think about all of the things, all of the major inventions that were created in the 20th century. Now, try to name five that didn't happen in science fiction first. You see? I don't think I can name five, and it would take (laughs) me a little while to probably name one. Exactly. Was GPS and, talked about in sci-fi? Yes. There, that was going to be my one. So there we go. I'm out. <laughs> Pulsar navigation. Okay. GPS satellites orient themselves um, based on pulsars that are very distant from the Earth, actually. And uh, this was... I can't name the science fiction writer offhand. I'm afraid I'm drawing a blank. But it actually was a science fiction writer who came up with this idea. So... It's, it's debatable, and it probably goes both ways, whether science fiction writers come up with something or whether they just kind of see the direction that engineers are going in, whether they see the possibilities. But the fact remains that this heavily influences our technological development. And... It influences our attitudes about technology, and technology influences our culture. And fiction in general, not just science fiction, influences what we think is culturally acceptable and culturally normal. You know, we've been telling each other stories around the campfire since we developed language, and stories have always been how we how we transmit our values, how we talk about what we think is true and important. And I think one of the reasons that a very small number of people who are on the far 
far left have come to have a disproportionate cultural influence to where everyone is sitting around on the internet talking about them and censorship and how our society is going to hell, you know, due to the influence of like less than 1% of people who are into this madness. You know, the reason for this is, is that other cultural forces somehow decided, somehow developed this attitude that art was lost, that art was lost territory and we should just surrender it. And that's okay because fiction is for babies anyway. Well, even if that were true, Babies grow up, you know, read me a story, daddy. You know, you can, you can mock stories all you want by suggesting that they're for kids who say that. But, you know, if you don't do that, then somebody else is going to read your kids a story. And then that person is going to be daddy. And what is that story going to be about? You're not going to control it. So if your cultural viewpoint is not creating art, you know, whether that be movies, television, books, audio books, cartoons, you know, comic strips, whatever it is that tells a story, if you're not creating stories, then you are dying you are dying because you might have kids, but your kids will embrace the culture of your cultural enemies and you will be erased from history. So it's time that we stopped leaving art in the hands of these utterly selfish, utterly foolish, and utterly irresponsible tiny minorities of the population. You know, you can literally point to a, a nice round number of city blocks in probably the Upper East Side of Manhattan that is controlling the entire United States traditional publishing industry. Well, those people live in one place. They all talk to each other. They all see the world in one way. And they're making a concerted effort to exclude alternative points of view. So it's about time that the rest of us started telling our stories. Because if you don't tell your story, no one hears it. I think that that's, it's so important important for people to realize that because I think, like you said, I'm somebody who, uh, I, I used to read mm -hmm. only fiction. Yeah. Uh, and then at a certain point, I don't know what switch flipped in me, but I started thinking somehow, you know what I need to, uh, I, I need to read nonfiction. I need to read, you know, and I, I genuinely enjoy books about monetary mm -hmm. theory yeah. and, you know, yeah. uh, uh, the Austrian economics and, and yeah. all, you know, history. Yeah. But, there was something missing yeah. and I have to yeah. thank you because yeah. theft of fire gave me that back a little bit well, and that welcome. felt, it felt really good, but yeah. people forget that everything is about all of our culture is about stories. Yeah. 
all propaganda is stories. All yeah. political yeah. political movements are just stories. Yeah. And the the team yeah. that has the best story, the group that yeah. has the best story, yeah. controls yeah. the narrative. Well, every every vision of the future is a story, and I won't say it's stories that separate us from the animals, but it is the same capacity that allows us to tell stories that separates us from the animals. Because in order to plan, in order to learn and grow and develop and make things like fire and the wheel and technology, what we have to do is we have to tell ourselves a story. So the reason that a bird can't make a plan and, you know, maybe an African gray parrot or a raven or some smart birds can to some extent, you know. But if you picture something like a bird that can't really make plans and carry them out, it's because it can't tell itself a story about the future that hasn't happened yet. So every time you make a plan, you're telling yourself a story. Every time you decide to create a podcast about Bitcoin because you hope to effect some sort of positive change in the world, then you start and you have to start and you can only start by telling yourself a story in your head about how this will be. So if we don't tell stories, we're animals. And the stories tell us how to proceed and they tell us about what things might be possible. So the reason that this tiny percentage of lunatic neo-Marxists, and you know, I'm not talking about people who vote Demo Democrat, you know, I'm, I'm talking about really, really this fringe of lunatic neo-Marxists. You know, the reason they have influence is everyone else was asleep at the wheel while they got influence over how our culture told itself stories. Yeah. And, and I, is the, reason, the reason that everybody feels despairing about the future, despite the fact that we have all this cool shit and we're about to go to Mars, is that they tell stories of despair and we read them. And, you know, so we're, we're, you know, we're listening to all this dystopian nonsense about windmills and solar panels and austerity instead of building nuclear reactors and colonizing Mars. <laughs> yeah. it, it does become absurd at a certain point. Yeah. It, it just, if you look at the, let's say, the, the stories that we tell ourselves around energy. And because yeah. this is something, uh, you know, yeah. you brought up the, this is yeah. a, a Bitcoin podcast, but yeah. we talk about whatever comes up here, uh -huh. uh, yeah. you know, because uh, yeah. there are many things downstream from, uh, or I should say money Bitcoin is upstream of many things. is an element of a plan. Yeah. It's an element of a plan based on a goal that we want to be free. We want to be free to control our own destinies and make our own decisions. And one of the ways that people who want to centralize power, this gets back to socialists and intellectuals and 
people with central plans that they want the rest of us to be chess pawns and carry out. You know, one of the ways that they centralize power is, is controlling money supplies and printing money and this kind of thing. But Bitcoin is not this, this thing that can succeed or fail on its own because it's part of a larger, not even a movement, but just a goal, a desire to, to not be moved around like chess pawns, to make our own plans, and a plan is a story, and to carry out those plans and have our destiny be determined by our stories that we tell ourselves and not by a story for, that someone else invented to indoctrinate us. If you want to keep your Bitcoin safe from the communists and the totalitarians of this world, you need to take it off an exchange and into your own custody. Go to bitbox.swiss walker and use the promo code WALKER for 5% off the Bitcoin-only Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. It's fully open source. You can go to their GitHub and verify for yourself. You don't have to trust me. It's also super easy to set up, and it's a great tool for seasoned psychopaths and new Bitcoiners alike. When you go to bitbox.swiss walker and use the promo code WALKER, not only do you get 5% off, but you also help support another fucking Bitcoin podcast. So thank you. You know, my vision for for telling my stories was not just to get my vision of the future out there to say, hey, we're going to colonize the solar system and it's going to be cool. And we're going to build AI and it's going to be cool. And we're going to tamper with our own genome and it's going to be cool. It was also, I told a story. You can tell a story too. There's nothing stopping you. You know, I'm... There's no big publishing house behind me. I just, you know, I'm some weirdo with his two wives in a little house somewhere in Tennessee. And that's, that's it. (laughs) And here I am (laughs) selling all these books and it's great. And and you can do that too. If, if that's what you want to devote your time to, you know, or you can make a podcast or you can make some other kind of art, or you can start a company and train AI entirely on classical Greek literature. You, you just make a plan and, and build something. You don't need permission. You know, and I think the beauty of what you, you said about uh, just, like, you're, you're just a guy, right? Yeah. You decided to do this yeah. and you made that decision yeah. and it was actually possible to yeah. do that today oh, yeah. and to get recognition and be yeah. seen at scale yeah. because of decentralized because, yeah. decentralization. Yeah, because the tools are there because the tools are there and the institutions that have been captured by proponents of this anti-human, anti-life philosophy, these institutions are rotten from the inside. They're weak. I love competing with TradPub because they suck at this. (laughs) 50 years ago, they were powerful. 50 years ago, they had mindshare. 50 years ago, they knew how to tell a story. Well, now they don't. Now they don't. 
now, you know, teenagers aren't reading anymore because we haven't given them anything to read. They haven't lost the ability. They're not dumber. They're not dumber than previous generations. In fact, in some ways, they're smarter because they know how to take something toxic and set it down and not look at it again. It's, it's you know, a, it's we a just haven't given them anything to, to, to love. You know, the beauty of what you just said also is you talk about uh, going up against Trad Pub, right? Yeah. And that you like that fight oh, because yeah. they are bad at this and that parallels oh, yeah. so well. Yeah. I mean, to, to media and communication in general, look yeah. at, look at uh, yeah. cable news yeah. versus Tucker Carlson, uh -huh. who just yeah. got, however, 120, yeah. 30, I don't know what it's up yeah. to, million views. Does anybody views. watch cable anymore? I think it's only on at airports. I honestly, I'm pretty sure that at least 60% of the viewer base of cable news is just yeah. forced viewership yeah. at airports. Yeah. I'm almost I mean, certain. Who reads it. the newspaper? Like really? <laughs> it, it's, it's mind blowing, yeah. but you know, they're, they know that they're losing power too because yeah. they oh, are yeah. big and slow and they are the incumbent. Well, and they were th these news organizations and Hollywood and so forth were created by the communications technologies of the 20th century. And those are radio and television. And those are one-way communications media that, are, that support a one-to-many model. And they centralize control. And this is why the 20th century was the century of fascism and communism because all of these tin pot dictators like Hitler and uh, Stalin and Roosevelt and so forth could get on the radio and deliver these spiels to an entirely passive audience who had no way of talking back and no way of talking to each other and saying to each other, you know, hey, what do you actually think of this New Deal stuff? You know, some of it sounds a little fishy to me. You know, you have no way of knowing when you're listening to this one-to-many communication medium, that you're not the only one who thinks the emperor has no clothes. Well, with the internet, we have a many-to-many -many communication medium. And, you know, in, in microcosm, you sometimes have some one-way stuff. I mean, I'm sure that at some moment in the future, there's someone watching this podcast who has something to say in response to what I said, but obviously I, I can't hear him. But there's a whole internet on which he can say what he has to say, and somebody else will hear him, and it may even end up being me. So there are still these kinds of podcasts and, you know, screens and, you know, people making a story where the, you know, it's a mini series or a movie and it's one way in the fine grain, but overall there's a conversation. 
there's a conversation between everyone and everyone else who has enough wealth and technological know-how to get involved. And there's no longer this capability for just a handful of people to control the narrative. And every time they try, you know, because there have been various attempts. I mean, the, the Democratic Party basically bought Reddit before the 2016 election. But the thing, and, and they bought The Onion as well, which used to be, you know, satire news. and used It used to be, to be good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's all, it's all like left-wing puff pieces now. Um, but every time they do this, the value goes away, and then the audience goes away, because audiences are no longer captive. They're no longer beholden to everything that you, you say on Channel 7 because there's nothing else on. You know, we've had, we've had three eras of power. And the first one was violence. You had the king. And the king only had to be supported by a small number of armored knights because the penalty of an armored knight is very expensive. And this was the ultimate military technology. And so the king could force everyone to do his bidding with the voluntary support of only a small number of armored knights. And then somebody invented not only gunpowder, but rifling to where now a peasant with a tube can take out your armored knight at 200 yards. Well, okay, now you enter the second era of power, which is the era of deception. You can no longer force everybody to do their bidding, especially if you're in America and they're all armed to the teeth. <laughs> so you have to fool them. And to fool them, you have the technology where to get your message out, you only need the support of a few people because you have radio and television, and radio and television is very expensive. So now the radio and television are the armored knight of the era of deception. Well, now you have the internet and a peasant with a podcast can take out your armored story at 200 yards. Yeah. And so now we are entering the era of persuasion. And I know there's a lot of people listening to this, or at least a few who are thinking, well, you know, that sounds very naive because things are awfully dark right now and all of these deceivers and powers that be are pulling all these shenanigans to keep their control. And, you know, this seems unduly, you know, naive. And what you have to understand is that all of these shenanigans they're pulling, they're pulling because they have to. You know, it used to be that your power brokers just kind of called up NPC and NBC and NPC also works <laughs> NPC uh, in also. that case. Um, Very fitting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They just called up NBC and said, you know, here's what, here's what we want the news to do today. And that was sufficient. And now 
there's all this thrashing around trying to buy social media websites and, you know, trying to trying to make deals with Facebook. And, you know, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, it turned out that, you know, the intelligence community was calling up Twitter and telling them who to censor. And, you know, the reason they're pulling all this bullshit is because they have to, you know. If you're digging through the couch cushions for loose change, you're already in trouble. So this kind of thrashing around in desperation shows that on a larger scale, the tide is turning against people who achieve power by manipulating. And in the future, leaders are not necessarily really going to be those elected to office at all. And they're not necessarily going to be those with billions of dollars. They're going to be the people who can create a compelling meme or a compelling story or a compelling narrative that gets out there and has everybody say, yes, yes, I believe what you say. This this stirs something in me and I'm going to repost it and I'm going to copy and paste it and I'm going to send it to my friends and I'm going to spread this message because I voluntarily accept it because it speaks to what is within me. So we are entering the era of the ability to persuade as the source of power. That's a thing that I think is personally very hopeful. And the beauty of this is, is that the, the genie doesn't go back in the bottle yeah. when it comes to technology and when yeah. it comes to decentralizing technology, yeah. yeah. like things can trend yeah. towards centralization, yeah. but with certain types of technology, yeah. with the internet, which one can argue has become, mm -hmm. uh, there are various silos and various gatekeepers, right? Yeah. But there are also many ways to get around those gatekeepers. Yeah. Well, there are, there also, are various you know, silos, but it's no longer one big silo. Exactly where yeah. one people yeah. or person or yeah. group of people decides who's allowed yeah. to be in the silo and who is shot, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, but they are terrified of this. There, uh, there's a, a new protocol for it's, I would call mm -hmm. it a protocol for publishing because that's yeah. really all it is. It's called Noster. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. It's notes and other stuff transmitted by relays. I uh, don't think I have. I'll, I'll send you some stuff on it afterwards. The, the reason I bring it up is, it's as simple as possible a protocol as it can be designed by an anonymous guy. All anyone knows is he's from Brazil and he just built this thing to be social media as it was meant to be. Yeah. But the beauty of this is like, like Bitcoin, uh, it is just a protocol and yeah. it's op all open source. So anybody can yeah. take it, copy it, create whatever they want. They tried to ban multiple, uh, clients on this protocol in China and People just use other clients or yeah. built their own, found ways yeah. around it. The internet they can't stop interprets it. censorship as damage and routes around it. Exactly. Yeah. And this is such a, in my mind, yes, there are plenty of reasons to be yeah. gloomy, to yeah. be, uh, to worry about the future, well, but there's hope. Bad things are always going to happen. And it's easy, you know, looking at the latest bad thing that happened is a little bit like checking your stock portfolio every day. You're going to get depressed. 
<laughs> you're going to get depressed because the losses are going to weigh more heavily on you than the gains. But just like the market trends up forever, the arrow of history is technology. And that moves in one direction. And technology sometimes makes things worse, but it makes things better more often than it makes things worse. So whenever we lean into the creation and adaption of new technology, we gain greater control over our lives and our destinies and our world and eventually the rest of the universe. So, because we're, we're not staying here, we're going places. We're going to colonize the rest of the solar system and then we're going to colonize the stars. And, you know, we may have to physically remove anyone who tries to stop us, but we're going to do it. And so, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, when you look at it from the perspective of, would I rather be alive in 1042 or 2024, the answer is always very clear. You know, we gain power by understanding the universe and implementing technology based on it. And gaining power is a good thing, despite what, what you know, the Hollywood movies have tried to tell you for the past years however many years, it's like, you know, anyone who wants to gain power is evil. No. No. You know, gaining power allows you to shape the universe, and it's, it's up to you to have a good vision for shaping the universe. But there are more good people than evil ones. There are more pro-social people who want to get along and cooperate with others and have a culture that helps all of us, then there are evil people who just want to rob. And the reason we know that is that we have a civilization at all. Yeah. You know, we are a pack animal and we instinctively seek to get along with the pack and help each other. And those who don't are broken people. And they gravitate towards sources of centralized power. So we are starting to remove the sources of centralized power. And the broken sociopathic people are panicking. It's delicious though, isn't it? Yes. To taste the panic a little bit? Yes, yes. You know, one thing I, I want to touch on, uh, because I've seen you, uh, seen you talk about it a lot, and I think you've brought up some uh, really great points and also explained them in ways that even a neo-Marxist could probably understand mm -hmm. as they relate to private property. Yeah. And because we, you know, uh, we were talking just in general about centralization. And mm -hmm. ultimately, the goal of centralization is to centralize everything, right? That, yeah. The goal of communism was to, yeah. and of, of course, by, you the know. The goal of centralization <laughs> is, to, is to be the central power and have everyone else be your slaves. Yep. And we've seen this time and time again. It's not, yeah. it's not the means of production to the people. It's yeah. a few people in yeah. a room 
deciding what's who, best who for everyone. Who claim to represent the people. Oh, and they're you know, so gracious, it's always, aren't they? always, we represent the people with a big P, and they hate people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, it's, it's always that, and their argument is always necessity, and their argument is always, I will be a benevolent master. And, of course, the refutation is, well, you know, that's the, the evil is being subordinated. It's yes. not having the wrong master. It's being subordinated in yes. the first place. And I want to set yeah. you up with this, if I can. But uh, you were talking about private property. Yes, yes. But that yeah. is exactly, okay. that it runs right along to it. Uh -huh. Because the whole purpose, we let's loop it back to the law as well, yeah. right? The entire yeah. purpose of the law is to organize the collective defense of private property. Yes. That's really what the, the core purpose of yes. the law is. Property the law has been perverted is to what it is now. Civilization. Property is civilization. And this is the critical thing to understand because everything that we call civilization is a piece of the environment, you know, things lying around that we have taken and invested effort in and we have made them into something useful. And the reason people are willing to do that is that pe other people can't then come along and take that from them by force. You know, if someone can come along and take whatever I have built with force, I'm not going to waste my time building anything. You know, I'm just going to sit around trying to feed myself day to day and pursuing immediate pleasure. I'm not going to delay gratification to invest in anything because then that investment will be wasted. And this explains where property rights come from. You know, this is a debate that has gone on for thousands of years. You know, where do rights come from? Are there rights? You know, are rights given by God? You know, and then somebody comes along and says, I talked to God and he said, you should do what I say. And, you know, other people have these elaborate intellectual constructs where rights are inherent in a human being. And they write pages and pages and pages of philosophy books to try to rationalize this bullshit. And here's where rights come from. We made them up. We made them up. They just, we just invented this shit. It has no basis in reality. We just invented it. But we invented it because we needed it. The concept of rights is a piece of technology. It's a piece of technology that allows civilization. And it all boils down to property rights. It all boils down to this basic rule that if someone invests and builds something, they own it and they control it and you can't take it from them. And that is what built not only empires, it's what built our entire technological stack. It's the reason that we are not living in grass huts in Africa. And 
That's why property rights are absolute and absolutely important, despite the fact that we just made them up. Because without them, nothing works. And we can all go back to banging the rocks together. And I so, think that's, it's so fundamentally yeah, important. Yeah, that people don't, nothing yeah, else matters without yeah, that fundamental yeah, right yeah. to keep what you have made and used yeah, your time and energy yeah, to create. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when you have people who are, who are in the sorts of government offices and these kind of, of positions of power trying to weaken property rights, what you, what you have to realize is that these people are trying to tear down civilization. And the reason they are trying to weaken property rights is to make it easier for them personally to take your stuff from you. They are willing to burn down civilization so that they might be king of the ashes. It's, I mean, that's, it's psychopathic parasitic behavior yeah. is what it is because well, these it, types of people, they're rent seekers it's is worse what they are. than psychopathic because most of your smart psychopaths understand the value in in making a deal with people you know you can get along with a large portion of psychopaths the problem is these people who who think that they can take and take and take and take and no one is ever going to drag them out of their buildings and guillotine them on the front steps. And that, that is what eventually happens when you push people hard enough, yeah. you know, and just, just saying what you'll find in history books over and over again, you know, and when, when people don't care about abstract philosophical concepts like freedom, they care about their quality of life. And property rights is where abstract concepts like freedom and quality of life intersect because it's an abstract philosophical principle, but you sure as hell don't have any quality of life without it. I like that framing of bringing the abstract to the very tangible too, Yeah, because it, it matters for people. It matters that what's mine is mine. And when I work for something, I know I can keep it. Yeah. And what I yeah. think has gotten really yeah. and dangerous. And I don't owe it to anyone. Right. And what's you know, gotten... I don't get some Barack Obama lecturing me on how you didn't build that because you drove on a road at some point. Oh like, God. The, yeah. Somebody else argument. made a flat thing. Well, fuck you, Barack. I did, in fact, build that. Yeah. Also, the the and roads argument is one of the dumbest. Wants to take that shit from everyone. I, I I always say whenever someone brings up the roads argument, I just say, please come to Chicago, where yeah. we pay some of the highest yeah. taxes in the country at multiple yeah. levels and spend yeah. a lot of roads and pay money to drive in those roads tolls. Yeah. Yeah. And they are still the shittiest pothole-ridden pieces yeah. of garbage you have ever because seen. Because somebody's stealing all the money that you pay. Yep. You know. We had roads millennia before we had an income tax. Yeah. And, <laughs> and know, that's... It doesn't really take that much to make a flat thing. In Chicago, it apparently it does. In, in Chicago, it's really complicated, I guess. You know, uh, roads but... weren't even invented 
they evolved. You walk the same way enough times, and you know, by you, I mean you could be like a grazing animal and do this, <laughs> and you have the beginnings of a road. You know, you've stomped down the ground, you've cleared all the plant cover, you've made it flat, you've got a road. Okay, you want to drive a car, you have to pave it. Okay, let's pour some asphalt. It's not difficult. I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've had some technological advances that are cool, but the basic concept is not difficult. You know, there, there are a lot of things that people think, oh, we can't have this without the government because the government currently does it. It's like without the federal department of nutrition, who would synthesize the Soylent Green? <laughs> Well, let me introduce you to the concept of a grocery store. Wow. <laughs> it, 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 it is so funny, too, this, uh, this tendency for some to just assume that the government, things will get better if we just give the government more power. If we yeah. just let them tax us a little more for the greater good, then yeah. they'll have the money they need. But yeah. all that that yeah. does is expand the bureauc bureaucratic state. Yeah. Yeah, it makes them I, I less personally efficient. think I personally think the phrase the greater good is fighting words. Yeah. And we need to normalize kicking the ass of anyone who says that. Like just a punch in the mouth right there. You know? <laughs> who decides the greater good? Yeah. Who decides what is the greater yeah. good? Yeah. And that's what it comes down yeah. to, right? No, Does the free market decide it? The people the people who talk to God always get told exactly what they want to hear. The people talking about the greater good always coincidentally seem to benefit from what the, whatever they say the greater good is. The greater good and and uh, and safety also yeah, typically yeah, go yeah, hand yeah, in hand. Yeah, you know, yeah. just to, to keep you safe. Uh, you yeah. know, this is for your yeah. safety, well, not, not safety, for me, for you. Safety means that things don't fail, <laughs> and the basic model by which capitalism advances civilization is that you allow bad ideas to fail. You know, safety means not taking risks. And the basic way by which civilization advances is taking risks. You know, one thing that I, uh, I learned at a very young age from, uh, I had a, I had a, a friend in college and you know she was like 20 years old or something and she was dating this 45 year old entrepreneur and so I was having lunch with him and he said something very surprising to me that I've taken with me for the rest of my life he said I hope she fails a lot huh? and he said because failure is what you get before you get success. You try things and you fail and you learn things and then you try something else and it works. When someone tries to make you safe, tries to protect you from downside risk, tries to suppress economic instability or AI technology that might make you lose your job. What they're really doing is they're preventing the risk-taking behaviors that advance civilization. 
you know, I took a crazy risk writing Theft of Fire because, you know, I was working as an engineer and making six figures, and the first of those figures wasn't one. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm going to retire and I'm going to write a book. It's <laughs> just like, you're nuts. You know, you're retiring five, six years early and you're going to, you're going to try to like sell stories to people in a book market that's shrinking. And it's like, okay, well, if people didn't take crazy risks like that, we wouldn't have new things. You know, because I could sit around writing like industrial automation controls and getting paid lots of money for it. And that's nice and all, but lots of people can do that. You know, when you tell a story, you're the only one who could tell that story. So you try stuff. And, you know, maybe, maybe my writing isn't as good as I think it is. And it's all going to I fail and I have to go back to engineering. And yeah, but that, that's okay. That's okay because somebody is going to take a risk and it's going to pay off and we're all going to benefit from that. So we all have to get out there and try stuff. And that means we have to push through the fear. And, you know, producing creative work is terrifying. It is because at some point... This thing exists only in your mind, which means you're investing years of your time into making something that nobody asked for, and nobody believes in it except you. And that is terrifying. And so when we make generations of people who are risk-averse, we don't get great technology, and we don't get great art, and... A lot of this is, is based on government schools. What do government schools teach you? Stay in your seat, wait in line, wait your turn, raise your hand before speaking, agree with teacher, get an A on the test by avoiding mistakes. It teaches children to be risk averse. And then you come along 20 years later and you tell these children, well, you know, you can start a business or you can go to college and get a degree in sociology. Well, I'm going to go get a degree in sociology because, you know, I don't think I can survive on my own and I, I need to work for somebody. They're risk averse their model of success has been avoiding mistakes. Well, in the real world, nobody cares how many times you screwed up. You know, people who like my writing, they absolutely do not care how much shit I deleted on my own computer before I put together what I put together. You know, people don't care how many times you failed. They don't care about your failures. They care about the magnitude of your eventual success. It's uh, uh, for what it's worth. I was uh, I was homeschooled up until high school, 
and then went to high school. I to envy try. you, sir. I, I, <laughs> I, the older I get, the more grateful I am to my parents. I will say yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, because that's a homeschooling is also a, a labor of love, you know, and that's, yes. I'm yes. very it's grateful. It's an investment in your children. Yeah. And, you know, so mom and dad, if you are, uh, if you're listening to this, thank you yet again. But, you know, it's, it's so funny. I found uh, some of the spark that they gave me when I was homeschooled and, you know, got my work done in two hours a day by reading my textbook front yeah. to back Yeah. and then got to school and realized, oh, wow, I thought I was going to be behind. I thought, what if I'm an idiot? What if I'm just a mm -hmm. big dummy and my parents yeah. screwed it up? You know, they're, yeah. they yeah. were English majors. I f thought I was pretty good at math and science, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then I got to school and I realized, oh my God, this is so painfully slow and we are catering yeah. to the lowest common denominator yeah. and there is no creativity encouraged yeah. and we yeah. waste so much yeah. time. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, they don't strike out on their own because they are intimidated. I spent almost a year trying to find agents and publishers for theft of fire and you know, everybody was not interested. And they were very interested in telling us about how they were very expert professionals and we couldn't succeed without them. And then, you know, my agent is one of my wives and the other one sort of runs the business end of things. And we've, we, now we have professionals like authors and agents and stuff coming into us and saying, what's your secret? Hmm. Well, our secret is that we finally figured out if you want something done right, do it yourself and care about it and do your homework and try. You know, it's like the people have been conditioned to think that there's this huge gulf between themselves and the very expert professionals and we're helpless without them. And then when you actually get inside the factory and you see how the sausage is made, it's like, you know, you guys are just barely competent and you have institutional support. And someone with intelligence and ambition and energy can very easily beat you. You know, uh, back to the theme of hopefulness, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I found myself in this uh, Bitcoin space community, whatever you would yeah. like to call it, uh, over these last couple of years. I'm not one of those uh, OG whales. I uh -huh. got in in 2020 when I uh -huh. yeah. found out that we were just printing money out of thin air and sending checks to people. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Where does that money come from? Yeah. What is money after yeah. all? Yeah, we invent, uh, we invent dollars out of nothing. We have an institution that just says, I have X dollars, and now I'm going to lend them to you. Mm -hmm. Well, you just made them up. It, you just made up something entirely imaginary, and then you're going to lend it to me? It doesn't exist. Central bankers, in my humble opinion, are probably the ultimate rent seekers, mm -hmm. because... They they truly just create In fact, something. They're out more of rent seekers than the actual rent seekers. Yeah, 
because the guys who develop properties, it's like, you know, they're, the reason they're charging you rent is they took a burned out, dilapidated factory and they turned it into an actual building you can use. Yep. They, so maybe pro- they actually provided va- the right term. Yeah, they, they provided, they, they might need yeah. to rebrand that actually, uh, <laughs> yeah. the actual renters. Yeah, uh, well, or, you know, I was on a, I was on a podcast with a real estate guy and I was talking about how stories are upstream of culture. And I introduced this concept of you guys let this term rent seeker enter the culture because you're not getting in the stories. And he's like, rent seeker, what do you mean by that? And this guy literally has no idea that the term, and he's a real estate developer, and he literally has no idea that the term rent seeker is being used to mean parasite. I actually watched that interview uh, and, and I saw that reaction from him. And I was like, because to me, that term means that means a parasite who provides yeah. no value yeah. and only extracts yeah. it. Yeah. That's, that's what it means. Yeah. And when he didn't know that, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is it's like you incredible. are roadkill in the culture war, my friend. And it's like, you know, no, he's a great dude. You know, yeah. I had a lot of fun talking to him. He's very smart, but he just. You know, he, he, he's, he's been on the sidelines of the culture war while his destiny is decided. And hopefully that will change now. You know, gosh, that, that really was a pretty incredible interaction. But uh-huh. it's, it's illustrative of the fact that people who are uh, engrossed in a particular industry, in a particular space, subgenre, whatever it might be, they often, you know, it's a, it's a fish in water, right? You can ask yeah. it what water yeah. is, but it, it doesn't yeah. have a fucking clue. It just swims in the stuff. Yeah. Uh, but and uh, and I will here. I'll, I'll slightly bring it to Bitcoin, just just a little uh-huh. bit. Okay. Uh, but because oh, talking like about central banks being those, the wait, sorry. Uh huh. Well, I like Bitcoin. <laughs> That's happy great. to talk about well, it. I can, t- and I actually want to talk about it. Uh, a couple of things you mentioned about it in your book right after yep. this, because yep. of course I perked up when I yep. read that. Uh-huh. Uh But. Central bankers as the ultimate rent seekers. And then you also mentioned earlier, you know, that one guy who makes a really great meme can mm-hmm. influence yeah. so many people. Yeah. And this is that we're seeing a great example of this culture war, of this war of stories mm-hmm. play out around Bitcoin. And I love to yeah. see it because you have yeah. central bankers now who are yeah. actually referring to the money that they make up out of thin air as fiat currency. They're actually calling it fiat. Yeah. Which they were not doing a number of yeah. years ago in normal dialogue. Now, yeah. because a bunch of Bitcoiners and Austrian economists and, and gold yeah. bugs too, let's yeah. give the gold bugs some credit, uh-huh. have hammered that yeah. term in so much. 15 years ago, they started 15 using years it. ago, people thought fiat was just a shitty car made by Ford. <laughs> right. Just, just a tiny little car yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, you, that you don't yeah. really want. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in the, in the book, which I will hold up again to make my agent... Stop me, t- me too. Seething over there. Um, I I envisioned a future where Bitcoin was one of a large number of competing cryptocurrency technologies, and one of the ways that cryptocurrency works in a lot of. Uh, in a lot of this orbital space universe is that a lot of it is backed by stock. So 
this is essentially a decentralized stock exchange where you have this cryptocurrency asset which represents the stock in a corporation. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are into Bitcoin think of every other cryptocurrency in the world as a scam, and maybe a lot of them are, but I think that in, in any endeavor of, of the human condition, in any area of human technology, anywhere where you don't have competing alternatives that people can choose between, you effectively have a lack of innovation. You effectively have a lack of pressure to provide good service. So I didn't want to, while Bitcoin is a good thing, I didn't want to create a future where there is only Bitcoin. I wanted to create a future where you're walking through you know, the public area in so much as anything is public in this world. Mm. And, you know, there's the display showing the current exchange rates between Bitcoin and all these other competing currencies. Well, one and of the it's things... people's choice how they want to store their wealth. Well, and right, and well, and that's the whole thing with all of it, right? Is yeah. voluntary choice, mm -hmm. freedom to opt in. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I love that you snuck into the book a couple of times was in for a mill, in for a Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, hearkening back to the in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. yeah, yeah or, you yeah. know, or, or mills on the Bitcoin yeah. was another yeah. one, yeah. which was just kind of a hint to say, like, whatever the mills is representing, you yeah. leave it up to the reader. Maybe it's mm -hmm. some sort of uh, futuristic. I deliberately dump. left that day. Exactly. But in my mind, of course, I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. going to dollars and thinking, yep, mm -hmm. oh, okay, the year is this. I'm trying to calculate, yeah, boy, yeah. okay, that's, that'll be after the last yeah. Bitcoin was mined. Uh, it should be pretty interesting then. But Yeah, well, I had, I had this idea that a single Bitcoin was worth an awful lot. Right. Because there's a limited amount of it representing the size of a a sizable portion, like say 20% or so, of the entire orbital economy. And these people have been mining asteroids for 75 years, so that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And and I, I loved, again, that was one of the things that I, I mentioned earlier that I loved about the book was, it. yes, it's set in the future, yes, it's science fiction, but there's always these ties to the present. Uh, that make it all the more real. And, you know, thinking uh, to take it slightly back to uh, to Bitcoin, and then yeah. I want to go in a little bit of a different direction, because this is a Bitcoin podcast, mm -hmm. but yeah. they, my audience will also hear plenty of about Bitcoin uh, on mm -hmm. every other show, so I wanted <laughs> yeah. this one to be a little different. Uh, one of the things that I think is important about Bitcoin, tying it back to property rights that you'd mentioned, is the ability to have that property to preserve your own private property and to have that be free of confiscation or rent seeking behavior, which yeah. is what we see from these central banks and yeah. Bitcoin yeah. emerged. And all Bitcoin is, is it's a, it's a monetary yeah. technology. All money is technology, right? Yeah. And the yeah. best technology, as yeah. you said, is going to win. Money and the one is, with absolute is, scarcity yeah. is money you know, is a technology for measuring fucks given. You went exactly where I was hoping that you would go with that. <laughs> I, 
I saw you say that, uh, that, uh-huh. you know, money is a, me- is a tool to measure how many fucks you give essentially. Yeah. And I was yeah. thinking that is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. If I, if I wanted to have a slightly more economy focused and uh, maybe slightly le- more flippant kind of novel, I would have called the unit of currency, the fuck, <laughs> <laughs> because it measures whether you give a fuck. Yeah. You know, anyone who claims to give a fuck and they're not spending their money on something doesn't actually give a fuck. Yeah. That's why the expression, put your money where your mouth is, exists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the market, all that, all that price is, is a signal, right? Yeah. It's a signal that the free market provides. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's letting you know how many people, give people a fuck. care about this thing. And what that helps us do is it helps us prioritize. Like, here I am. You know, I'm going to retire from engineering and I'm going to write science fiction novels. Well, how do I know whether the aggregate of all the other people values me more as a science fiction writer than as a software engineer writing, you know, uh, like aircraft maneuvering controls and credit card processing stuff. And, you know, I worked for Oculus for a while. Um, How do I know? Well, there's a concrete measure of fucks given. And in our current environment, it's not totally reliable because it's been sort of heavily regulated and manipulated and so forth. But there's still a percentage of signal there. And it's like, okay... I can make like, you know, this sort of six figure salary forever, or I can try to do something that's a little bit crazy and swing for the fences. And so, you know, one of the reasons I want to make a lot of money as a writer is that I want a lot of money, (laughs) but which is completely reasonable. I also want to know that I'm doing something that people care about that, that what I am doing has resonated with them. And, you know, that's been, that's been sort of an interesting part of this journey is, you know, I spent many, many years as a software engineer and I built some cool stuff. But, you know, nobody ever came to me and said, you know, none of the customers ever came to me and said, thank you for doing this. <laughs> because I was always sort of immersed in the sea of this big number of people working together on a product. And then when you go out and you build something yourself and people appreciate it, that, that becomes personal. So... You know, that's, that's a very special kind of thing. But ultimately, what measures how many people you're impacting like that is the, the fucks given. Yeah. And, and that's how we help people decide what to do that's actually going to help other people and be what they want instead of this sort of Keynesian digging big holes in the desert and filling them up again. And that's the worst part of government. It's not just that it takes a lot of your stuff. It's that it takes a lot of your stuff and then it pays smart people to do stupid things 
when they could be doing smart things instead. It's it's something that I, I don't think people realize how destructive government subsidies are across so many oh, yeah. industries. Yeah. Because it, all it is is pure, plain and simple manipulation of free market signals. Yeah. It is, and especially when you're printing that money, yeah. you're running an ever-growing yeah. deficit where, yeah. where we yeah. have a, a yeah. trillion well, a year just in the interest anytime expense. Anytime you subsidize something, by definition, you're artificially influencing people to do things that people don't actually give a fuck about because if they actually gave a fuck they would pay for it themselves out of their own supply of fucks well and people think oh maybe it's not so bad i mean come on what what could really what could be the worst thing but then like you want a very tangible example look at nixon in the 70s look at all the stimulation to grow as much corn as possible Corn and right? soybeans. Yep, and then and now everyone. What did we do with all those corn and, and soybeans? Sick. Hmm. You know, it's, it's like literally. You, you know, I I'm 50 years old. I grew up in the 80s, and let me tell you, you know, people think that what we see around us every day is natural. It is not. You know, the average person today, we would have called them fat. In 1980, you know, the people who we call fat today, we would have been horrified. We would have never seen anything like that. And you think about how many people are walking around living lives of absolute despair because they can't stand to look at themselves in the mirror and they don't realize that the government has literally paid people to poison them and propagandized them to eat the poison. You know, they're not fat because they're lazy and lack character. They're victims. They have been practiced upon. You know, and just because it was convenient because all this power was concentrated in one place. And because a few uh, of the smartest guys in the room decided that certain well, industries needed to get subsidies. the smartest guys in the room. They thought they were the smartest guys out in the this, room. <laughs> this, whole, this whole trend in the 80s towards getting rid of fat was oh, based God. on one series of studies by one guy who... There's something in statistics called an ANOVA, analysis of variance. And he didn't do it both ways. He didn't, he didn't, you know, oh, here, prove that fat consumption is correlated to heart disease, prove that heart disease is correlated to fat consumption. He didn't do it both ways. You know, they just decided that saturated fat caused heart disease despite the fact that people had been eating saturated fat, diets high in saturated fat, for thousands of years. I mean, why were the French not dropping dead of heart disease? Well, maybe it's because fat consumption doesn't cause heart disease. Maybe it's the sugar, which they didn't have. Maybe it's the fact that in 1970-something, 
you know, the women decided we're not going to cook anymore. We want to be liberated. So, you know, a bunch of companies step in to, to fill this gap. And it's like, they're going to sell you what you buy. And so, oh, well, we've got all this sugar that we get from processing this subsidized corn. And, you know, if we put it in everything, people buy more because it's addictive. And now everybody's fat and sick, and they're saying we need to stop being fat phobic. Well, no. We need to lynch all the Pepsi executives. And with, well, at least we have Ozempic now that, you know, they've created uh, one of the other industries that the government loves, Big mm -hmm. Pharma, now yeah. gets their piece of the pie to be able yeah. to treat the diseases. Oh, well, and I, I don't say yeah. cure, I say treat. Yeah, the, the diseases. Yeah, it's, it's they more profitable. Caused. It's more profitable in this kind of subsidized environment where you're going to keep all the consumers low information. It's more profitable to treat sick people forever than it is to cure them. And and this is, you know, uh, I, I lied. I'm going to mention uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoiners once more. But in the context well, of this, okay, because one of the things that uh, a lot of us in the space talk about quite a bit is the fact that money is not just, you know, it, it is a tool, but it's also the base layer of society. It's the base layer of civilization. It is how we exchange yeah. value and how we are also with good money able to store our yeah. value into the future. Uh, it's and, how we work together. Yeah. It's cooperation versus coercion. Yeah. And it's, it's always going to be more efficient, but you need a good measuring stick for that for yeah. that cooperation, for those signals to be accurate, as yeah. you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Our signals are a little distorted, but they're yeah. still signals, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. It's not quite as bad as, uh, you know, like yeah. a, the Turkish well, lira is a worse money, signal than the U.S. Yeah. dollar. But Money started out as a, as a ledger. Mm -hmm. It started out as a mental ledger kept between members of a tribe with a population less than Dunbar's number of... Who contributed? Well, you know, this guy didn't hunt any mammoth because he spends all his time sitting by the fire banging the rocks together. But, you know, we couldn't have hunted that mammoth without the spear points. So he did, he did something we give a fuck about. <laughs> and we can keep track of that mentally because there's only a few of us. So, you know, here's the mammoth liver. <laughs> it's, it's, there you uh... go. And we started using tokens because the ledger became too big for us to, to keep in our heads. And it became too widely distributed for us to write on a piece of paper. So we started using gold and stuff. Well, gold is just another technology that substitutes for what was originally a spreadsheet. And now the blockchain, which I think is a stupid name <laughs> because it, it says how it works, not what it does. What it does is it's a big non-centralized spreadsheet. That's all it is. It's a spreadsheet. It just keeps track of, of who has what in a, in a ledger. And so you're moving back 
to the origins of how money originally worked. It's the chalkboard, you know, so-and-so contributed this, so-and-so owns that. And now we've found a way to have a ledger again. And one that is not subject to the, uh, the whims of mm -hmm. a small group of, let's call yeah. them tribal yeah. elders yeah. Uh, who get Something to decide. That's, that's not corruptible. Right. And the original ledger wasn't corruptible either because everyone had their own version in their heads mm -hmm. and they could decide for themselves whether they had, whether somebody had done something worth giving a fuck about. Yeah. And once you moved away from tokens like gold, where the, the earth and the mining industry is the issuing authority and you can't really fake it. Then, then you started having issuing authorities that were corruptible. And I think people need to understand that corruption, it doesn't function as a moral failing on a global level, on a distributed level. It functions more as a response to incentives. When you are the trusted guardian of a storehouse that is filled with value, the more value there is and the more people own that value, the greater the incentive to steal from the storehouse. And you can shake your tiny fist and say, he shouldn't have done that. But what you're essentially saying is that, you know, some people should be morally perfect and that will fix all our problems. Well, if people were morally perfect, we wouldn't have a lot of these problems that technologies are designed to fix. So, you know, the problem is not Joe Biden and his 10% for the big guy. <laughs> The problem is that you have this massive, robbable store of value that sits there luring corrupt weasels like Joe Biden. So what you need to do is find better technologies for storing your value. No, it's extremely well said. And I think the part that most people miss is the incentives. Yeah. They look at things and they say, well, this is just, this is bad for some reason because people are bad and it's, yeah, there are, there are some shitty people out there, yeah. but there are also good people who do shitty things because the incentives are structured in well, such a way good, to make them choose the good them. people vastly outnumber yeah. the bad people because if that were not true, there would not be a civilization. We would still be hitting each other with rocks. Yeah. And this is, I think the, the point that also, again, to bring it back to hopefulness, mm. because, uh, the fiat currencies that these central bankers have brilliantly engineered with their perfect 2% arbitrary inflation per year, which is just mm. the right amount. So you don't realize they're stealing from you, yeah. stealing your, your yeah. purchasing power, stealing yeah. your wealth. Yeah. People are starting to see through this also. The deception mm -hmm. is starting to fail. The veil is coming down because yeah. no matter how much you lie to somebody and say, look, everything's great. Look, infl inflation year yeah. over year is, yeah. is coming down. 
it doesn't matter because when they fill up their gas tank and go to the grocery store and buy their meat and eggs and milk, mm -hmm. they say, this yeah. is more expensive and I can't afford it. Yeah. So people start saying, I don't believe your bullshit and I want the yeah. truth. Yeah. And they start searching for truth. Yeah. And once they start that process of looking for what is the real story here yeah. versus the one I'm being yeah. fed, they start to find yeah. that there are some alternatives out there yeah. that these guys don't control mm. that I can freely opt into again, yeah. back to voluntary yeah. Yeah. cooperation. And it's going to take a long time. Yes. It is going to take a long time because despite what some over enthusiastic people in the Bitcoin community say, there is no such thing as real absolute value. It's all a measure of how many fucks people give. And they say, well, the value of Bitcoin fluctuates wildly. Well, that's because people's confidence in Bitcoin fluctuates wildly. And the goal for that is for confidence in cryptocurrencies to eventually grow. And the value to eventually level out. And, you know, people say, they, they pretend it's this big successful dunk on the idea of cryptocurrency. Well, people are investing in it like it's, a, like it's a growth asset. And it shouldn't be that. It should have stable value. Well, okay. That's nice. But that's the measure of the difference between a good idea and a bad idea is when you invest in a bad idea, you lose money. And when you invest in a good idea, you gain money. And, you know, eventually when you have a fixed amount of any given cryptocurrency and when the last Bitcoin has been mined and there's no more, because that is, that is a thing. 2140 you know, just, thereabouts. Just to make it clear, that is yeah. a thing that will happen. Yeah. When the last one has been mined, you will have whatever percentage of market penetration Bitcoin represents, like say it represents 20% of the economy. Then as the economy continues to grow, you will have this fixed amount of Bitcoin representing that 20% of the economy. So I don't, I don't think people understand scarcity. Inflationary currency where your money gradually buys more and more and things gradually get cheaper and cheaper because now all of the value of people discovering cheaper and cheaper ways to do things is returned to the holders of currency rather than being absorbed by the issuers of currency. That is extremely well put because I think what people fail to realize and to bring it all back to technology is technology is naturally deflationary. Mm -hmm. Things yeah. should get cheaper because yeah. when, when you because have somebody they're getting yeah, easier to make. Yeah. Look at making it something by hand versus an assembly line yeah. as a really basic example yeah. or an assembly yeah. line versus well, an automated every, assembly line. Every good thing that we make starts out as a luxury. And people do not understand that. They're like, you know, oh, how can we, 
Why are you selling these luxury goods to the rich? Well, that's a stage in the life cycle of a product. You know, and Elon Musk, for example, was very smart about this. Like, I'm going to make an electric car people actually want to drive. Okay, I'm going to start out by making a rich guy's toy for going wee around a track in. Because I can't afford to sell it for less than $130,000 because I've got all this production shit to work out. You know, I need to sell expensive cars. And then I'll figure out ways to make them cheaper. And people don't historically understand, very frequently, that everything started out like this. Running water, in-home electricity, plumbing, flush toilets, all luxuries. You know, things we take for granted today, iron, steel, you know, cloth. Poor people used to wear leather because cloth was expensive. You had to weave it by hand. And that's a, it's something that's difficult for people to grasp. And I, I liked how you, you made the point in the book as well about that as yeah. A, yeah. as part of an argument, you know, but it was yes. really well put yes. there. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to, I want to shift a little bit uh, away from money, but toward uh, more the technology side, because yeah. it's, it, it still has to do with money because it all does. Right. And uh, talking about incredibly deflationary forces of yeah. technology. Yeah. AI is something that plays a, uh, I, without going into too much detail for, cause mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to read theft of fire. I enjoyed yeah. the living hell out of it. And I think you yeah. will too. Yeah. Well, you AI don't need to worry about about too much about spoilers that there's an AI character. Because there is an AI character. She's on the cover. Yes. Yes. <laughs> she doesn't okay. show up for a while, but she's on the cover. You will, you will run into her eventually. Uh, -huh. uh but I, I love the way you approached AI because mm -hmm. I think, uh, you very, uh, what, if, if I may, what it, yes. and I don't ever like to infer what an author meant to do. So I'll just say what mm -hmm. it meant to me. Mm -hmm. It felt like you, uh, it was a very poignant rebuke, both of the people who say that AI ha is not going to be what people think mm -hmm. it is. And it's going to be kind of just, it's all kind of crap and it's not really going to go uh -huh. anywhere, but it's yeah. also a stinging rebuke of those who say that AGI is going to be here next year. And, and it's, it's going to turn us either, all into paper clips. Yep. And, and you managed to kind of dance on that line mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And that's yeah. how it felt well, to me anyway. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit and what so your thoughts are on AI? There, there is no message. Yeah. The purpose of theft of fire isn't to convince you of anything. It's to give you some things to think about and a story to enjoy. So, Orbital space, the universe, doesn't have opinions. Characters within it have opinions. But I'll tell you something I wanted to do with that story. And that it's... It, there's a thing in science fiction where almost every AI character falls into one of two tropes. They're either the Terminator or they're Pinocchio. They either want to wipe out humanity or they want to be a real boy. And I wanted to create an AI character that was neither. And I think that 
talking now about the state of technology and how I projected it, I think that we, we approach AI technology not by recreating a living organism in the sense that it makes plans and has volition and so forth. What we do is we, is we pick off the heap little tasks that human beings can do, like drive a car or play chess or use language or do art. And we throw a whole bunch of clock cycles at finding a way to do that. And every time we do a task better than a human being, or better than the average human being, everybody runs around waving their hands and says, we're going to create you know, an artificial human being next year. The problem has been solved. No. No, 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 no. You just made, you, you looked at a human being, which is the machine that has the capacity to learn tasks and can do things. And you replicated one capability that a human being can learn. And you said, oh, now we have a human being. Well, no, you don't. You have a really awesome tool, but you haven't even started on the problem of making something that can generally act and learn and grow the way human beings can act and plan and learn and grow. And what I did here was I wanted to take the slice of the very moment that artificial human beings entered reality. So it's like there's only a handful of them in the solar system because they're really expensive and risky to produce. You know, expensive and risky, that's how everything starts out. Tens of thousands and, of Bitcoin, if yeah. I remember, uh, yeah. just for, for one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't use the term billions because we're no longer thinking in dollars. Exactly. Um, it would have been uh, trillions if that was the case, probably. Or, oh, yes. Uh, oh, God. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I had I had a sort of a figure in mind for how much a bitcoin is worth in this future in modern dollars and it's a, it's a pretty high one. Yeah. Um so I wanted to enter just at the cusp and I made the guess that when we crack this problem it's probably going to be by copying evolution's homework. You know, it may not be through like plugging a human being in and literally copying them the way it happens in the book, but it's probably going to be through looking at and trying to imitate some of the deep structure of the brain. I, I liked the way you, you wove it in with the, the, and now that you've said it, I feel comfortable mm -hmm. saying it, uh, the, you know, the, the copying of a human, because it was yes. basically, you know, implying that, look, we couldn't figure it out the way we thought we were going to figure mm -hmm. it out. It didn't, the mm -hmm. a artificial AGI did not work like that. Yeah. We had to basically, if we wanted to create something that was like us, we had to copy us. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was very interesting and also mm -hmm. came with its own set of baggage, which yeah. added, yeah. added a nice touch there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's very much a story about some of the human consequences of technology. 
and some of the post-human consequences of technology. Because, you know, without saying too much, only one of the characters on the cover is actually a human being. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, if, uh, well, yeah, I, I don't want to... Don't want to give anything away because I do really recommend that people uh, that people read yes. Theft of Fire yes. uh, because yes. it was. I uh, recommend it as well. That would make uh, me very you happy. don't you don't say. Uh, <laughs> may I ask? Because uh, you came out with Theft of Fire, was that just in November? Was it? That was November eleventh. Was our publication okay. date? And and I understand from seeing some of your posts, you were planning on doing three initially, but now it may be four. It's going to be four. It's going. Does that mean I, four may turn to five? Or I are we? I don't think so. I think I have a better handle on it now. Oh, okay. Because I am very much an architect type writer. I plan everything. And in fact, the last scene of the last book is actually written. Really? Yes. Yes. I know what the last sentence of the whole series is. Um, so. And I know exactly where it's going. There's a, there's a, there is a master plan. Okay. And the thing that happened to me was that between the end of the first book, where, where an important thing happens, an important piece of progress is made, and the beginning of the fourth book, where... We're pretty far in the future, and there are some significant consequences. The things that had to happen between X and Y would become very, very sketchy and more like a summary mm -hmm. if they were to fit into one novel. And I spent a couple of months after I published Theft of Fire sort of trying to stuff all of this in a suitcase and jumping up and down on the lid trying to get it closed and it just wasn't working so like in late December I realized this and I said okay I'm going to spend <clears throat> the first couple of weeks of January just taking everything I have and I typically write about 25 to 40,000 words that readers will never see just in summaries and structure and notes and so forth. Um, I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to spend a couple of weeks splitting this into two books. And that's not just a matter of chopping it in the middle because every book has to have a satisfying narrative arc. So there has to be an intermediate conclusion between these two books which I've got to find to go somewhere in the middle. And now I've kind of got a handle on that. And I'm starting to make progress on the second book, which adds an additional viewpoint character. So that's, uh, that's I... a little bit of a new complication. But I'm just starting to like, okay, I lost some progress there because it got moved to the third book and it'll help me eventually. But it's like, okay, now I've got the, I've got the task sort of cut down to a manageable portion and I'm starting to churn on that and get things going. When do and, you think, I don't know, it, may I ask when you are aiming to try and get out the second book then in the okay. series? Well, I don't want to be George Martin. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. And, <laughs> jo- you know, George Martin committed two sins. The first sin he committed was not finishing for 13 years <laughs> and counting. I think it's 13 years. This is something like that, some outrageous amount of time. But the second sin that George Martin committed, which was far more egregious, was lying to people. So I want to be completely transparent and honest and say, number one, I'm not a fast writer because I am very perfectionist. And I hope that that came through in the novel. It did. And, you know, number two, I'm new at this. This is my second novel. So my ability to estimate is not very good. So when I say I hope to publish next November 11th, that is a hope. That is not a promise. So I promise I'm not going to be George Martin. Fair enough. Well, as as you say, I hope I can get it out by the end of this year. It may stretch to a little later than that. You've got to forgive my eagerness. I'm just looking forward to the the next part of the story. I completely understand. I completely understand. I, you know, I've had people mention George Martin and Patrick Rothfuss in my timeline, like two weeks after I published. I'm like, okay, chill. Really? Seriously, chill. Or I will reach through the screen and smack you. (laughs) Um, but I, I understand the anxiety and I understand that often these expressions of eagerness for a sequel, you know, precisely because there are so few good stories out there now. It's like, it's, I take it as a compliment, but at the same time, I do need people to be understanding that this is difficult. This is not easy. You know, the, the bonus is it gives me time to read it again and redigest. Yeah. So yeah. that that's a good thing. And, yeah. you know, as you say in the book, plans yeah. are a list but, of things that will yeah. never happen. One, so. one of the things that I hope to do is inspire other people to, to get on their own writing process. Because I can't... Shut up. Uh, because I can't single-handedly resuscitate science fiction you know trad pub has has been ideologically captured and burned down fell over and sank into the swamp i can't replace that all by myself and with the few other writers there are out there who got their careers launched before trad pub burned down fell over and sank into the swamp so you know, I can produce maybe one novel a year once I hit my stride. You know, unless you read one novel a year, I'm not <laughs> enough. There have to be more people doing this. I'm just trying to be part of the solution. Yeah. Well, I, I would highly recommend, I know we're, uh, we're hitting time here and time okay. is scarce, much like yes. Bitcoin. So I want to be conscious of yours. <laughs> yes, but we've I, been going for like two hours, haven't we? It, it flew right uh, by. And I've got yeah. to say, I, I enjoyed the hell out of this. That, this, this has was, been a fun conversation. I I feel like we could, uh, we could probably go a lot longer. Uh, but again, my voice t- t- would completely get yeah, <laughs> Which just means we'll have to have a, have to have a check-in again in the future if you're game for it. To. But I, I will make your, your agent happy. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, read theft of fire. I yeah. re- 
really and truly enjoyed it. If you are a Bitcoiner who has probably not read anything but Austrian economics and various short form articles on Bitcoin in the last couple of years, give yourself the permission to read some really great science fiction and you will enjoy it. And yes, Bitcoin is even mentioned multiple times. So it's like you're reading something about Bitcoin too. You don't well, have to feel it's, guilty. <laughs> it's a vision of the kind of future that the people who are into Bitcoin want to see. Yeah. It's a vision of the kind of future where we've stopped sitting around whining about carbon emissions and economic inequality and actually decided to build something again. I think a lot of Bitcoiners are going to very much identify with that message. And, you know, I, I just realized, Devin, I, I need to talk to you again because there was a whole other thread I wanted to pick on about something you said recently about science fiction, real science fiction being essentially libertarian, oh, yes, which yes, I thought was yes. really interesting. But yes. we'll just we'll, have we'll to leave that for next. We'll, time. we'll have to save that for the yeah. sequel. Uh, so, you know, uh, before we cut out, then uh, Devin Erickson.com, I will include links in the show notes. Uh, you can find the book Theft of Fire on Amazon. It's where I bought mine. Uh, anywhere else you would like to send people, I'll include your Twitter as well. Um, uh, no, pretty much. Uh, Twitter is really the place to engage with me. And, you know, where to buy is pretty much wherever you prefer to buy, because I tried to be as widely available as possible. I don't like to dictate to people the format or the platform that they purchase on. Well, I, so again, my agent is, is making thing. desperate gestures over here so i will indulge her for two seconds but please you better do get point for please your do readers who prefer things that are without drm yeah we have we have drm free you platforms can find his website yeah it's smashwords yeah um, yeah there are there are i think a few others as well but there are drm free platforms for people who are into that particular crusade okay okay well i'll include uh, the links on the website uh your twitter as well and I'll send you a, I'll send you a quick uh, note on Noster as well, because I think it might be something that you would find very interesting yeah, for yeah. censorship resistant yeah. uh, social media. Yeah. But that's, that's a topic for the sequel conversation as okay. well. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely love to come back. This has been tremendous fun and I hope that it is as fun for your listeners as it was for us. Well, you know what? Honestly, fuck them. Uh, but I think, it, I, I, th I think they'll enjoy it. And you know, I like to I like to end this by saying, Bitcoin is scarce, but Bitcoin podcasts are quite abundant. So thank you again for sharing your scarce time for another fucking Bitcoin podcast. And uh, I look forward to doing this again. Look forward to reading the next one in your series. And until then, uh, I'll see you on the internet. And that's a wrap on this Bitcoin Talk episode of The Bitcoin Podcast. If you are a Bitcoin-only company interested in sponsoring another fucking Bitcoin podcast, head to bitcoinpodcast.net or hit me up on social media. On Noster, head to primal.net slash walker. And on Twitter, search for at Walker America or at Titcoin Podcast. You can also watch the video version of this show on X or on YouTube by going to youtube.com slash at Walker America 
or Rumble by searching for at Walker America. Bitcoin is scarce. There will only ever be 21 million. But Bitcoin podcasts are abundant. So thank you for spending your scarce time to listen to another fucking Bitcoin podcast. Until next time, stay free.